Season 6 of Let's Talk About Sects is proudly presented by Audio-Technica, who are a huge supporter of Australian creators and whose equipment is a big reason why the show sounds great. Each episode this season, we're giving away a pair of ATH SQ1TW wireless earbuds to a listener. Head to www.ltaspod.com slash win to enter. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Journalist Emma Lehman is the creator of the independent podcast Gooned, which dives into the troubled teen industry, or TTI a network of for-profit congregate care facilities for youth, ranging from wilderness programs to therapeutic boarding schools. In the podcast, Emma interviews survivors, parents, staff members, experts and activists. Across the USA, young people are funnelled into this $23 billion industry not only by their caregivers but by government agencies. While these places advertise themselves as solutions to everything from troublesome conduct to mental illness – Emma shares through Gooned that they are ground zero for emotional, physical and psychological abuse with lasting traumatic impacts on the teens they say they serve. And a number of the dubious and damaging methods many of them use can draw a straight line to a cult. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we get into this interview, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also discusses physical and sexual abuse and conversion therapy. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. Emma Lehman is a UCLA alum with a major in English and minors in Global Studies and Professional Writing. Her investigative podcast series, Gooned, looks into the troubled teen industry and is out now. Listeners might know about this industry from an episode we did way back in Season 2 of Let's Talk About Sects, on Chuck Diedrich's drug rehabilitation cult, Synanon. It's disturbing to think that the methods of that destructive cult continue to impact the lives of so many young people today through their influence over this industry. And I know you'll be just as interested as I was to learn more about what Emma found out for her podcast, Gooned. Hi, Emma. Thanks so much for joining me. First up, for listeners of Let's Talk About Sects, can you tell me about the troubled teen industry's links with a cult that many would have heard about in detail on this podcast, which is Synanon? Yeah, so tactics outlined in the BITE model, which helps identify cults and uh, systems of behavior and thought control, are used across TTI programs, uh, both towards the teens enrolled and their parents and families, and have been for decades. 
but ties to Synanon specifically are very direct. The programs founded by former Synanon members are very widely used as blueprints for how the industry operates today. Former Synanon members founded the earliest TTI programs, which drew directly from some of the teachings and writings of Synanon. And the Sidu School, which is kind of known as a, it's pretty well known, early TTI program was actually founded by a former Synanon member, uh, Mel Wasserman. And there's conflicting reports on what CDU originally stood for, but a lot of people think that it stood for Charles E. Dietrich University, who's, of course, the uh, founder of Synanon. And several Synanon members were involved in founding a bunch of early TTI facilities, and those program materials are still drawn from today in the industry. I spoke with survivors for Goon to remember exact SeaDo uh, program materials at their facilities decades later. And even the tactics used in uh, the Synanon cult, a lot of people on Goon talk about scream therapy as well as attack therapy, scream circles um, by a lot of different names. But that idea of shame and social pressure as a behavior modification tool um, is kind of a cornerstone of the industry. It's pretty incredible that, you know, what is now recognized as a, a cultic group and the way that that group came to a head right at the end with its dangerous activities still managed to spawn these organizations that still take some of those tactics from the original Synanon teachings. It's just wild. Yeah. And, and Synanon, as you know, had a, towards its end, had a specific program for teens and for kids. So there's a lot of, a lot of overlap there. And yeah, it's, it's interesting that, you know, we all pretty readily recognize Synanon as a cult, but a lot of people don't recognize the TTI as a cult or as a system of behavior or thought control. Yes, exactly. And so for those who are unfamiliar, how would you describe the troubled teen industry or the TTI as you sometimes refer to it and what it does or says it does over in the USA? So the troubled teen industry is a network of profit incentivized behavior modification facilities for youth. Uh, ranges from wilderness programs to therapeutic boarding schools. There's a lot of different names and classifications, and there's really no, there's no law, there's no kind of legal precedent for what type of facility can call itself what. So you'll hear teen ranches, boot camps, a lot of those similar names. The most common are probably wilderness therapy programs, residential treatment facilities, and therapeutic boarding schools which are the types of facilities that people interviewed in Gund uh, went to. And they purport to offer treatment to teens who struggle with anything from depression and addiction to eating disorders to angry outbursts, any kind of problematic behavior. And it's an, it's kind of an umbrella term, right? They will purport to help fix your child from whatever it may be that's ailing them in your specific situation, but many survivors and families point to lasting trauma and these programs failing to address any struggles that they may have been facing uh, when they were sent away if they did need intervention. And the podcast title, Gooned, comes from the phrase being gooned, uh, which is used in survivor communities to refer to a pretty common method of transporting youth to TTI facilities. Parents can hire transport services, uh, teen transport service is usually what it's called, to legally abduct their children, usually at night, and take them against their will, and usually without their knowledge, to programs, often by plane, sometimes by car, across state lines. 
and parents, both for these programs occasionally and also for the transport, have to sign away temporary custody, which is what makes that kidnapping or abduction legal. It it sounds so full on. And I guess it, it, it makes me wonder, like, are there, you know, facilities in this area that are doing good and above board things? This is kind of an issue with, with regulation or is this practice just so common? I mean, it's it's interesting. I I spoke to some people who do have more complicated feelings about their time in the program. And often what I came across is that people who have people who felt that they drew something positive from having attended a TTI program, it came more from knowing that they were able to make it through that program rather than the materials and the tactics of the program itself. So you'll hear from Rob in one of the episodes who was sent away in the 80s. And he he says very frequently that, you know, the fact that he was able to make it through that program, that he stuck it out, really gave him a confidence in himself to turn his life around. So he credits Straight Incorporated to an extent with helping him turn his life around. And, you know, you there are stories out there of people who have had positive experiences and it's it's complicated because, you know, the, the issue is a lack of regulation and oversight. And it's very difficult, especially during vulnerability in a time of crisis for a family to vet a place like this and to, you know, decide what about what's being told to me is true, what do I have to investigate? And every activist and mental health professional that I spoke to in Gund pointed to community-based outpatient care as a better alternative. And you can having having talked to so many survivors, I feel that when a program is inpatient, when you're sending your kid away from their community, especially if it seems like you won't be able to talk to your child or have contact with your child, I think that's a cause for concern. And it's, again, parents and families are are put in a very difficult situation of asking that exact question and being told by people advertising these programs that this is exactly what they need to do and being in a very vulnerable spot where they're pretty likely to believe that to be the case. I think that's that's really good advice. And I think that that rings true here in Australia as well. I know that this is kind of a really big industry in America, and we might feel that we're uh, immune from that type of thing happening here, but that's not the case. When I was researching my book, I did find that there are facilities that are drawing on some of those same techniques here in Australia too. And so can you give us an idea of the kinds of things that happen in these facilities and the impact that they can have on the lives of their charges? Yeah, so survivors in Gund um, report instances of physical, psychological, emotional, sexual abuse, ranging from kind of more insidious tactics of shame and isolation and social pressure to outright use of solitary confinement, overt use of conversion therapy through hypnotherapy. A key element of most TTI programs is a level system. So students will come in and progress through a series of levels, phases, stages that award or revoke what the programs refer to as privileges for desirable or undesirable behavior. And these privileges are often basic needs like food, water, social contact, uh, consumption of media, contact with family and personal hygiene. And TTI facilities engaging in behavioral modification through negative reinforcement 
becomes especially dangerous in the wilderness setting when adolescents are hiking for hours or performing manual labor and being awarded or revoked food, water, medical care, blankets, bathroom access based on subjective assessments of their behavior. And those are the programs where you will most frequently hear cases of severe physical harm or even death as a result of a lack of resources or this type of revoking what they call privileges in such a harsh environment. And a lot of queer survivors recall conversion therapy and homophobia and transphobia more generally and behavior modification tactics used to either overtly or covertly turn them straight or turn them cisgender. Incredibly shocking. And the idea of treating basic human needs as a privilege is just, it's hard to get your head around how anyone could think that that's potentially a good idea. It's, I, I remember I, when I was talking to Sam, who was interviewed in Gund, they remember a box on one of their behavior cards for a snack where they could earn an extra snack. And a, a lot of the issues with, you know, this kind of structure of awarding and revoking privileges is that it's subjective. The staff member that you're interacting with on Tuesday afternoon might believe that one behavior earns you dinner. And the staff that you're interacting with on Wednesday morning might believe that the same behavior is a problem and needs to be addressed. So it's it's very, it puts students in a position of not knowing what is being asked of them and not knowing what it is that they can do to progress through the program. And levels are also used. It's, you know, it, it seems to kind of give a clear idea of how long you're going to be there and what you're accomplishing while you're there. But a lot of survivors that I spoke to in Gund remember being very close to graduating the program or completing the program and then being dropped a level. And the parents are told, well, you know, you were going to stop paying tuition and your child was going to graduate, but now they're a level four and they need to be a level five. And using what seems to be sort of a tool to show parents and families that there's a clear progression through this program flipping that on its head and using it to get more tuition money out of parents and to keep children there for longer. So it's really, it's weaponizing this sort of trajectory or map to modify behavior and to get more money out of the families that have enrolled their children. Yeah, obviously a real uh, conflict of interest with a profit motive there. You created Gund because you found this to be an underreported issue and one that those with direct experience rarely talk about. Why do you think this industry doesn't get the coverage that it should have considering the shocking things going on? So when I began reporting for Gund, I was really startled to find that people that I was close to, people in my own life, had connections to the TTI, whether they had been sent away as teens, knew people who worked there, knew other people who had been sent away, and had never spoken about it. And these were people that were very close to me that I had hoped, you know, be able to confide in me about something like that. And finding those connections to the industry really showed kind of the shame and stigmatization that comes with having been sent away. People don't tell their closest friends and many don't tell people for years or decades. And I think that there's a cultural stigma against mental illness, mental health care, and those kinds of struggles already. And when you add to that the fact that survivors are young, when they're in these programs, often when they get out, they're still very young. And there's kind of 
they're viewed as disgruntled teenagers, out of control teenagers. And, you know, they're just young and they're bitter that they had to go through something hard. And when the industry does get negative press coverage, that's a lot of the narrative is, oh, you know, they're just they're just kids and they went through something hard and they're going to see that that it was good for them in a few years. And in, in addition to that, individual programs and industry representatives like NATSAP, which is a trade organization that kind of lobbies for and represents the troubled teen industry, are very quick to kind of the one bad apple narrative. You know, you'll see cases of death come out or you'll see records publicized of DHS violations and it's always you know, well, that's just one bad apple out of this whole bunch. And I think that the fact that the industry has been around for so long, it's kind of a self-feeding cycle, right? So people tend to think that something that's been around for this long, that's so broad reaching must have merit, you know, there's, well, it would have been shut down by now if not. And I think that the fact that it's been around for so long, the fact that they have plenty of money to to kind of put into marketing themselves, both to the public and to families, has really legitimized it in the public eye. And that narrative of, well, XYZ program is just a bad one. You know, when you only see this in the news every so often, it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, there's hundreds of these, and this is just one bad one. And I think people tend not to realize that even if there isn't a case of a death at a program, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's doing what it says it does. And it just kind of gets buried in the news cycle and gets legitimized and swept under the rug. I see a few parallels there with former cult members as well, like the shame that means that people don't speak out can also be related to the, the ways that coercive control has operated in the cult. And so it's it's kind of put everything back on themselves. It's always been their own fault. And also the public response to it, instead of it being that, you know, they're, they're disgruntled children, it's, well, they chose to join this cult or, you know, that sort of thing. Obviously, many people were also born in and never made that choice, but it's just, it's putting the focus on the wrong thing. And yeah, I see that with the coverage that you get a few sensationalist stories and it's not really digging down into the actually the widespread trauma that's going on across so many of these organizations. Paris Hilton sharing her own experiences in the troubled teen industry raised some amount of awareness. But what specific areas do you think are still underreported today? I do I will say before getting to that question, I think that Paris Hilton and other celebrities, there have been a few big names that have kind of come out and talked about their experiences at these places. And I think that that has been really instrumental in shifting that narrative. I think not only for survivors to see someone come out and say, hey, this wasn't okay what I experienced, but also to see the public kind of taking, for example, Paris's experience and being like, yeah, that wasn't okay. And a lot of survivors I spoke to, especially older survivors, it wasn't until 2020 when Paris came out with her story that it was like, oh, maybe what I knew to be true was right. Maybe this wasn't okay. Maybe this wasn't what I needed. And I think that's been really important in kind of getting rid of some of that stigma and bringing the public around to the truth about these facilities. That said, there are two groups that I kind of found that weren't being included in this growing conversation. Older survivors, like I mentioned, 
who graduated or escaped in the 80s and 90s, and queer survivors who experienced conversion therapy. And I think both of these experiences are really important to acknowledge as we have this conversation about the industry, as more laws are passed, understanding the experiences of survivors from the 80s and 90s, I think is really important to understanding how the industry was legitimized so early on, that sort of cycle I talked about where it's been around for so long, so it must be fine. And it's fine because it's been around for so long and kind of why it's continued to thrive after so many of those early programs were shut down. And, you know, Rob, who went to Straight Incorporated, I think that most people, if you were to look at Straight Incorporated on paper, hear those experiences, it's like, oh, yeah, that's not okay. And but, you know, that happened in the 80s. But then I think following that through, you know, from Synanon to Sidhu to Straight up until today, hearing from those survivors from the past can really help us see how direct of a tie that has to what's going on today. And for uh, queer survivors, I was very surprised to find how ubiquitous conversion therapy specifically, and also just homophobia and transphobia was in the industry. There's no data really taken on the demographics of what kids are sent away. But anecdotally, many of the people that I interviewed for Gund were queer And I think, you know, that comes from queer people are at a higher risk for mental illness due to uh, shame, stigmatization, being disowned by their families, social pressure, all of this. And because of that, you know, there's an overlap there with teens who are struggling or whose parents think that they're struggling. And then, of course, there are people who are sent away specifically for conversion therapy. And, you know, conversion therapy has been banned in most states in the United States. And when there are places found to practice conversion therapy, like religious institutions or, you know, church camps, it tends to be in the news and it's a big uproar. And I was so startled to find how rampant it is in TTI facilities and not having heard about it. And, you know, survivors, uh, KC, who was interviewed in Goon, remembers hypnotherapy specifically to convince him that he wasn't bisexual. And that kind of thing, you know, the religious undercurrents of the industry, especially in certain states in the United States, plays a big role in that homophobia, that conversion therapy, and just kind of a lot of aspects of these facilities' teachings. And I think that conversion therapy is one of the scariest ways that this influence can be seen. And I think that how blatant this the conversion therapy and the homophobia is, you know, when that gets out there, I think that that can also help shift the conversation towards understanding that these places may not be as helpful as people think that they are. Sure. And I mean, you've already kind of hinted at a couple of reasons why, but why do you think these organizations are allowed to continue to operate in such a damaging way? I think that a big part of it is you know, in addition to what I've mentioned, in the United States, there have been within the past few years, especially since Paris Hilton has come out with her story, there have been a lot of state level legislation, which already is hard to enforce. These places are very remote, oftentimes, you know, which that initial barrier, if you can't physically go and inspect it, because it's out in the boonies. And, you know, a lack of reporting information, like there's so much so many issues with oversight, even at the state level. 
And then you add to that that in the United States, there's sort of two elements of government. You have the federal government, which is like the big laws that you know, govern the whole country and then the state level laws. So a law that's passed in uh, Oregon, for example, about regulating teen transport services. Well, that's great if you're being transported to or from Oregon, but anywhere else that doesn't apply. Even in Oregon, it's very hard to enforce. So SICA, the Stop Institutional Child Abuse Act, I interviewed Caroline Cole on Goond, who has been helping uh, draft that bill and get it through. And that is kind of the first federal level legislation to really address the troubled teen industry. And that, even that bill has to start with a study. It has to start with, I mentioned a lack of studies on who's sent away and where they're sent away. All of that record keeping and understanding of from the demographics to how much money are we talking about? Where is this money coming from? Where is it going? All of that that should have started decades ago. Now the legislation, before we can even begin to start regulating, we have to start with that. And I think that, you know, because the industry is so decentralized, it's so difficult to enact legislation that is A, enforceable and B, applies to every single facility And they've had decades to figure out how to kind of shirk these regulations. And the industry is very good at kind of avoiding not only transparency, but also accountability. You'll see in facilities that are kind of maligned in the press if they have too public of of an event happen, you know, neglect or death or abuse, they just reopen under a new name and they have structured themselves without, you know, getting too into the jargon, they've structured themselves often in a way that allows them to kind of pick up and move the same staff, the same facility to another physical building under a different name, and then, you know, clean slate. And so even the laws that do exist, legislation in the past three or four years has outpaced the previous 50 years combined easily, which is wonderful. But it is hard to kind of have to begin with that information gathering and that record keeping when you have survivors like, no, I, you know, this is what I experienced. This needs to stop. So I think it's a very slow process and it's a process that often also gets kind of tied up in politics and in party politics, individual politics. I think especially when you consider the religious exemption aspect of it, that can get into territory of, you know, becomes a political argument. And it's, it's frustrating and it's, but I think it is heartening to see again, since 2020, so many state level bills at least, and to see this federal bill being pushed by names like Paris Hilton, who legitimize it a lot more. Some of those are really familiar issues to me as well. Often when you try and talk about any legislating around cults and how they operate it gets tied up in this religious freedom argument as well and it's I think it's just so important to try to untie that uh that link because although many of these groups are religious or come from a religious background it's the coercive control that's the issue it's not the belief system that's the issue I guess unless we're talking about homophobia and conversion therapy which is quite a problem (laughs) so what what things need to change to improve this situation I think so the regulation I was talking about is promising and, you know, ideally we would have perfect regulation to bring transparency and accountability to the industry. 
But I really think that the best way to abolish the industry is to begin before the idea of congregate care even enters the question. I think that the troubled teen industry has been around for so long because it fills a need. There's an acute and chronic lack of accessible, affordable, and effective mental health care in the United States, especially at a community level. So when you have families, caseworkers, judges, schools, mental health professionals who are faced with a child who needs help or a child that they believe needs help, they either don't know where to turn, have very few places to turn. And when those resources are non-existent or so difficult to access, and you have someone in your ear telling you that this is what, you know, this is what's best for the kid, it's very easy to kind of fall into the trap of that miraculous catch-all solution. And I think it's hard because I think that increasing funding, affordability, accessibility, and public understanding of community-based outpatient support for those struggling with mental illness or even just, you know, struggling with being a teenager, I think that that's what starting long before you even consider a TTI facility is the best way to go about it. That said, you know, that's a solution to a lot of things. You know, it's not, that's not a, it's not that no one has ever decided that we should fund mental health care better. And I think that, you know, to the extent that, to the extent that it's something that we can do, I think that, you know, a family's journey into the TTI begins long before they speak with an admissions representative, before the goons arrive at the door. It begins the minute that their child needs support and the minute that they're scared and in that vulnerable position. And I think that kind of fork in the road is where having access to affordable and effective outpatient resources is the best weapon against the TTI. Because if you can find that support for not only your kid, but for your family and for you as a parent in your community, uh, surrounded by your support system, you're never going to get as far as even investigating a facility. So it's it's a hard answer because again, you know, fund mental health care better is the answer to a lot of things. But I really think that you know, as this legislation works its way very slowly through the courts, I think that the most important thing is to start start far before you even consider a TTI facility, getting your teen and your family those community-based outpatient resources that are often really hard to find or financially or geographically inaccessible. Yep, that totally makes sense. So tell me, tell me a bit more about Gooned itself and what you're looking to achieve with the podcast. Yeah, so since releasing the show, the response from survivors has been so humbling. Having people feel seen and heard by the podcast has been really rewarding. And, you know, my, my ultimate goal is that Goon can bring the testimony of these survivors, especially those survivors who are queer, those survivors who are older from older programs, give those stories the attention that they deserve, inform the public more broadly. And one of the main goals of the podcast reporting, you know, from the undercover investigation to the interviews to the history is to reach those parents and caregivers who may be at that juncture of wanting to find support for their teen, for their family, who may be considering the TTI and to address them with compassion and with conviction. This is a topic with a lot of nuance and Gund really tries to recognize that. I'm not here to 
villainize parents or caregivers who have made this choice. I think that to an extent, they were also victimized. And I hope that Goond can also open up those conversations between survivors, between survivors in the public, between survivors and their families. I think that's really important. Realizing that, you know, healing is possible after these programs. The last episode talks a lot about how people were able to move on. You know, again, the people that I spoke to, and I I make sure to emphasize this, but the fact that I was interviewing them, the fact that they, you know, were sitting in their house with a laptop with a roof over their head, that means that they're the lucky ones. And it very frequently does not end up that way. But I hope that by getting their stories of not only their experiences in the TTI, but how, whether they've gone on to become an activist, a mental health professional, something completely unrelated, how they healed themselves, if they were able to heal their relationships with their families. So I hope that the podcast is informative and healing and also a resource for families, caregivers, mental health professionals who may be considering the troubled teen industry to get more of a nuanced look at all of those perspectives and hear from survivors what they experienced and also how it's stuck with them and often in a very negative way. And I, yeah, I guess also for, for members of the general public, just to understand what's really going on in these facilities. And I'm sure it's going to be a really relevant listen to uh, many of the audience members of this podcast and all the links to how you find it are going to be in the show notes. So before we finish up, is there anything else that you'd like to mention? I would encourage anyone who's a survivor themselves, has survivors in their life, or is interested more generally in the troubled teen industry and the movement to check out Unsilenced. They're a survivor support and advocacy organization. They've done incredible work in bringing transparency to the industry uh, and providing resources about the industry to the public and to survivors. Their CEO and founder, Meg Applegate, is a survivor herself, uh, was interviewed in Gund, and she and Unsilenced were such a phenomenal resource in researching this show, in understanding the industry myself. And I would really encourage people, whether you're a survivor or a family member or a loved one, they have support groups, they have tens of thousands of documents of internal records from these programs that they've been able to make public. They have an attorney database of lawyers who are willing to take on troubled teen industry cases. And I would also encourage people to read survivor Jamie Mater's research on the TTI. They were interviewed throughout the show and conducted an oral history of survivors and the effects of the TTI on survivors. And their research and consulting were very important for the show as well. And you can find links to Unsilenced as well as to Jamie's research on the website and in the show notes. Fantastic. So aside from listening to the podcast on their platform of choice, where can people find out more about you and your work? So Goond also has a website, uh, goondpodcast.com, with more information about the team behind the show, uh, some resources for family and survivors. We also have a TikTok at goondpod. Uh, We were able to team up with some great animators and artists on the visual material and some of those promotional videos. We also have a Patreon. Uh, You can support the show at patreon.com slash goonpodcast. As for me, uh, you can find my work in audio and journalism at my website, emmalayman.com. Layman is L-E-H-M-A-N. You can listen to my other productions, read my writing, uh, and learn about my other non-podcast ventures as well. 
Emma Lehman, thanks so much for the work that you're doing in this area and for taking the time to speak with me today. Yes, of course. Thank you for having me on. I hope that people can get something out of Gund and enjoy the show and, and learn about the troubled teen industry and kind of where, where we're going from here. You can access early and ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com slash ltaspod, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. You can also grab a copy of my book, Do As I Say. That link's in the show notes too. This episode of Let's Talk About Sex was produced by me, Sarah Steele, and music was by Joe Gould. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks again to Audio-Technica, presenting partner for season six of the show. If you're in the market for some top quality audio equipment, be sure to head to audio-technica.com.au to check out their range of headphones and turntables and mics that'll make your remote working setup on point. For every episode this season, a lucky listener will win a pair of ATH-SQ1TW wireless earbuds. Head to www.ltaspod.com win to enter. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support with or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention at iasp.info. Catch you again next episode.